Like oftentimes we in academia like have these terms multicultural competence, but really boils down to is the client comfortable talking to their counselor about their values, their identities, and can they make progress in counseling if they feel comfortable talking to them about that? Welcome to Health and Human Science Matters, a podcast by Colorado State University's College of Health and Human Sciences. I'm your co-host and digital media strategist, Avery Martin. And I'm Matt Hickey, Associate Dean for Research and Graduate Studies. In our college, we make it our mission to optimize human health and well-being through discovery and innovation. Don't just take our word for it. Each episode, we sit down with people who fulfill that mission, our college faculty and staff, Today, we're lucky enough to have a friend and colleague from the School of Education, Dr. Jessica Gonzalez-Vola. Welcome. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Of course. We're delighted to have you. We were just talking about family and trips and and little toddlers. And so we'll we'll start maybe, in in your case, talking a little bit about family. We'll we'll go outside campus first just to be a little bit different. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, we were just talking about my daughter, Emma, and how... I just took her with my husband, Chris, just down to Miami. So that's actually where I'm originally from, born and raised. Family's Cuban, so I'm first generation born here in the United States. Um, So moving here was a bit different, (laughs) but kind of born and raised in Miami. So took my daughter over there um, to Miami. She'll be almost two to meet my grandparents. So that was a very, very special moment. Um, And then down to Albuquerque to meet some of my husband's family that she hadn't met before. But yeah, it's just a a special time thinking about just how my impact has become different too since I've become a mom and since pandemic. I was going up for tenure during my five years here. So there was a shift in some of my personal life, like becoming a mom, and then in my research as well. So those those two things really melded for me. And we'll talk more about impact over the next hour, but I'm delighted yes. to hear it start with family first. Yeah. And yeah. We can talk about academic stuff as well. I, I do want to ask you, when, when you think about life as an academic and you think about mm-hmm. the big ideas or the big problems that you're pursuing, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what, what those are? Yeah. So I would say I am in about two categories right now. One of them is I really like to see if what we're doing as counselors so i'm a licensed mental health counselor and a licensed professional counselor um that's what i got my master's in and then i have my doctorate in counselor education which really taught me how to do research and teaching so really researching like if counseling is working or not and the process of it so i really like to get the client's perspective because so that's one of my avenues of looking at client outcomes so what does the client think of the counseling process and what's happening in counseling, is it working or not? Specifically, also, if they feel comfortable about talking about their different identities with their counselor. Mm -hmm. So really looking at their perspective on what we call in counseling multicultural competence, Mm -hmm. but it's really talking about whether you feel comfortable talking about your values and identities with your counselor. Because as the supervisor for the counselor, I can view that and I can view the counseling session and say, yeah, you're, you seem comfortable. The client seems comfortable talking about it. And the counselor can say, I think we're doing a good job here. Like the client's talking about their values, but what does the client think about that process? So that's one of the gaps that my research addresses is looking at the client's perspective of the counselor's multicultural competence. Which is so important because yes. we might think we're hitting it out of the park. Mm-hmm. And if we don't ask these important questions, we, we uh, may be off the mark. Exactly. It's like, is what I'm teaching in the classroom is what we're teaching as a profession translating outside of the classroom. Mm -hmm. 
in actual practice. We have a whole class on that. Um, one of the courses I'm teaching this semester, Counseling for Cultural Diversity or Multicultural Counseling class. Okay, we have a class on it. It's throughout our curriculum. But is it translating to our clients? Yeah. Because oftentimes we in academia like have these terms multicultural competence, but really boils down to is the client comfortable talking to their counselor about their values, their identities, and can they make progress in counseling if they feel comfortable talking to them about that? There's an accessibility piece here too, obviously, right? So, so making the environment comfortable for multiple identities, perhaps across the barrier of language as a for instance, mm-hmm. right? And ultimately, again, the goal is, is well-being. It's, right, mental health counseling. We, we want you to be able to be independent, flourishing, mm-hmm. right? These sorts of things. And we, we can't know whether we're effective unless we're doing the kind of things that you're doing. Yeah. And whether the we have different ways to measure progress, too. Like we have counseling interventions. So we look at clients' depression and anxiety, and they tell us about that. And we have assessments that they can fill out as well, which is one of my other avenues of I am a Spanish-speaking counselor, don't talk as fluent as I would want to. However, um, one of my passions is also helping underserved populations. So really people that come from disadvantaged backgrounds, um, like Latinas with breast cancer. Mm -hmm. So that's one of my other avenues of looking at, this is a population that experiences higher distress than other populations diagnosed with breast cancer, especially um, compared to white populations. So looking at what interventions do they need specifically to help lower that distress level. And again, it it seems to me understanding whether interventions work must be population specific, right? We might take practices that work for a particular population and assume, Mm -hmm. again, and and either it's not working or potentially we're even doing harm. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think, too, it's population specific and even like geographic specific because my, my work with people with health disparities. So for me, that means people with like a medical condition and having a mental health concern. So both of those things, if someone is going undergoing dialysis, there's also going to be a mental health component. Or if someone has breast cancer, there's going to be a mental health component there that goes hand in hand. So my work really started with working with people with dialysis and their families. And then in my doctoral program, one of my mentors, um, Sage Barden, started looking at Latina, um, just cancer patients. And then I brought in the Latina with breast cancer perspective. So we interviewed Latina breast cancer survivors and their partners um, in my doctoral program. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where my research started taking off on that that avenue. Mm -hmm. Um, So moving here, bringing it back to like that geography part of it, kind of my work now is we we're looking at some of the needs of the Latinas with breast cancer, like in Florida, but how does that look here in Colorado? And what are the needs there? Because one of the things in the Latinx community or with Latinas, too, is that there's different subgroups of people. There's a lot of different cultures, Latin American cultures, Cuban, Colombian, Mexican, like a bunch of different subcultures. So looking at what is the subculture here in Colorado and what does this population need? Mm-hmm. So... Um, one of my other mentors here is her name is Evelyn Barrero. Oh, yes, I know. Evelyn. Right. Yeah. So Evelyn, very accomplished individual, but she's the professor, associate director of the Latino Research and Policy Center and is associated with the University of Colorado in Denver, the CU Cancer Center. She is my connection here with people with Latinx and cancer. So we just she's mentoring me through what 
how to assess the needs here in Colorado. Mm -hmm. So we've just wrapped up a pilot study with Latinas undergoing breast cancer treatment through the CU Cancer Center and other connecting centers. So kind of my next move is looking at what are the needs here. Mm-hmm. You know, my wife's family is Mexican-American. Her mom is a two-time breast cancer survivor. So mm-hmm. you know what you're talking about here really resonates with me. And I'm also struck, I've learned this from my wife, there's a culture, Mexican-American culture for her. She spent six years in Argentina and was struck by how different it was, even though we speak the same yeah. language. And she, she even pointed out it's not quite the same Spanish. It's, yeah. That's right? very accurate. It's not the same Spanish. The The terminology that we have for one thing, like I mentioned, I, I'm i Cuban-American. Um, and my, fam- my Cuban Spanish, right, might be different than someone who's from Mexico and what their lingo is for a certain thing. Sure. So there is that important piece of it. Well, in this pilot study, we uh, we found uh, the nine participants were actually from Mexico or identified as Mexican-American. So looking at versus when I was doing some work out in Florida, it could have been Cuban or Colombian that was the main identity. Mm-hmm. So looking at what is the counseling intervention that's needed for Hispanic populations in Colorado that have breast cancer. So like, what are their experiences, right? So I'm not coming in with my knowledge from Florida or past experiences and just putting together an intervention. There are like, there's steps to these things, um, especially bringing in COVID because one of the pilot studies that we completed was done right before the pandemic hit. So now we need to look at how is COVID also influencing this population and what do they need to adapt our previous intervention? You know, this is such an important lesson about not taking things for granted. It's so easy to do sometimes, but boy, we we have to be brought up against it and say, wait, don't assume, don't take things for granted, right? Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about your family. I want to go back to Miami, if you'll allow us. And and I want you to talk about your pathway, your educational pathway, family influences. You've you've hinted Mm -hmm. at some mentors already, but... We yeah. want to hear about your journey to sitting mm-hmm. at this table today. Yeah, my journey. Yeah, like what brought me all the way here? <laughs> so I've been interested in psychology since just kind of how the human brain works has always fascinated me. So I, one of my first jobs was in a psychology lab in my undergraduate. And then I also received counseling and my family had counseling. So I saw how beneficial that was for my family. Um And then looking at how beneficial that was, really creating a passion, especially within the Latinx community. And there's stigma in a lot of communities with counseling. It's getting better, I do think. However, there are still barriers Mm -hmm. about, especially now that we have like online counseling and things like that. But wanting to contribute to that of having counselors. I know having a counselor that looked like me was helpful and understanding the experience. So I wanted to add to that conversation and try and lend to decreasing that stigma of, hey, I've been to counseling myself. I'm a counselor myself. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to try it, it can be with me, (laughs) right? People within the Latinx community. So um, I decided to pursue my master's in in mental health counseling from Nova Southeastern University in Fort Lauderdale. And through there, I worked in various systems and saw some problems that I wanted to address with like patient care. And I was looking at how, who are they listening to? And it wasn't to someone with a master's degree. It was my supervisor who had a PhD. So then I was looking at, okay, to make changes in a systemic level, I would need to pursue a PhD. Cause I also, 
I realized to make those changes, I needed to bring in the research of like, I'm suggesting these changes, but like what kind of impact can they make? Mm-hmm. And to prove that, like if we change this, this will affect this. I need to learn how to do research. Um, so then I looked into various PhDs and ultimately ended up with a counselor education PhD to be able to teach other counselors how to do counseling and then also do the research part of it. So I went to University of Central Florida there. Yeah, sure. And that's when one of my mentors that I mentioned, Sage Robardin, um, kind of got into the health disparities research. And that set me up for academia. I know I love, I've always loved academia. I think I'm going to be in school forever. (laughs) (laughs) I think I don't plan on leaving. So um, (laughs) then really looking at um, professor jobs, I was looking for a change from Florida. I was open to staying in Florida, so applied to a lot of different kind of jobs. And the counseling and career development program at CSU, like, sold me. So hadn't lived out of state, lived in various parts of Florida, but, like, I did the move. I moved here not knowing anybody um, right after my doctoral program for the, what was assistant professor, but now I'm an associate professor. Associate (laughs) professor position. And um, what drew me here was really the CCD counseling faculty, um, like, the, the family aspect of it. It's a smaller program. We It's a master's program. We accept students once a year, so we really get to know who our students are. And also the faculty's commitment to change. Um, when I was hired, they, they not that they weren't making changes, but someone hadn't been hired in a while because people just stayed till they retire. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they, they just stayed till they retire there. So one of the things I was like, if, if you want to hire me, you need to be open to maybe adjusting this and adjusting that and they were like yeah we've been wanting to do this and this and since then one of the changes that we've made was um changing our college counseling track into a clinical mental health counseling track because it provided more services for the community um rather than just in a specific specialization and the weather i think if i was going to live anywhere other than snow i was like at least the (laughs) foothills location like i can deal with snow because it's not every single day and it melts quickly it does yeah yeah yeah. so you found the transition from florida to colorado comparatively easy it had its challenges yet i kind of moved with more excitement because like i was craving this change and i try and make friends wherever i go i'm into fitness as well so like when i moved here i joined crossfit and i met some friends through there i put myself out there which i think was helpful and nerve-wracking at the same time Uh And I think surrounding myself with other female professors when I moved here and people of color also professors when I moved here helped me because there is a cultural difference. I grew up in Miami and there's um, just, I grew up with people who looked like me, even in kindergarten, I had professors who were not professors, like teachers who were Cuban and everything like that. So there is diversity in Northern Colorado and it's also different from Miami. So I think surrounding myself with other people who spoke Spanish helped me transition better and putting myself out there to make friends, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. T- tell me a little bit more about your, your first-gen status. And, and I want to make mm-hmm. sure I understand this. Are you first-gen college student as well? I am not first-gen okay. college student. So my parents came when they were very, very young. Okay. So mm-hmm. they didn't grow up knowing Cuba but they came when they were a baby or in toddler stage oh, wow. kind oh, of situation. Okay. So moving to Miami, there was a large Cuban culture. Sure. Yeah. Um, so my grandmother from both sides of my family came 
here. So my sister and I are first generation born in the United States gotcha. in that way. But my parents did experience growing up in the United States. So they didn't know grow, what growing up in Cuba was. Okay. But my grandmother's telling me a lot of stories about oh, it. Oh, sure. Yeah. Nice. Oh, my gosh. That's mm-hmm. great. So your parents obviously value education. I think, right? You, you, yeah. You don't get to the stage without some sense of, of it's it's important to us. Right. What does your sister do, if you don't mind my asking? Yeah. So um, my sister is an editor. So my sister has her master's degree in philosophy. Wow. And yeah, yeah. so... She's an editor specifically for books also with Tibetan and Buddhist people. No kidding. Yeah. And my father is a CPA. So he has his master's degree in accounting. So Mm -hmm. I am the first person in my family to get a doctorate, but I am by not by any means the first person to go to college. So I think coming here, my parents saw education And my mom was a paralegal secretary for a lot of years as well. So I saw I grew up. Um, seeing my mom work, my father work. My mom was home with me when I was very young, but she has always worked as well. So um, that work ethic, I think, and pride of continuing to, I think it's not pride. I just think it's one of my motivating factors to continue pursuing education because I'm like my grandparents sacrificed leaving Cuba to come here for a better life for their kids. And then my parents sacrificed a lot too when I was little. So that motivation to like continue our family legacy and they came over here. So I want to make sure that I do what I can with the resources that I have that they didn't have growing up. And then hopefully for my daughter, then like each generation is provided even more resources than what I had. Um, to con- and you know whatever path Emma chooses my daughter like maybe that's not college but like you have the option <laughs> you yeah, have yeah, the yeah. option for it like yeah. there's more options for it that's great yeah you know we hope the next generation is multiple right it's not just uh, we're fenced in and this is it right but yeah. any of a number of, of things that she can pursue I think mm-hmm. that's so great so thanks I was I was hoping to get a little bit more about your family I appreciate yeah. that so, so when we look at Jessica, the scholar at CSU, tenured associate professor now, of course, connections all along the front range with Evelyn and others. Mm-hmm. Can you t- give us some sense of sort of the day in the life? What, what, what does academic life look like for you mm-hmm. and for the people that you collaborate right. with? <laughs> I sometimes joke, I'm like, to be an academic, you have to have a PhD in time management. Ah, no <laughs> because yes. like it's, um, there's structure to it, but there's also not a lot of structure because you have one of the privileges of our field or at least mine is like I can research what I want to research Mm -hmm. so it's like how do we do that and how do we structure our days so I tend to dedicate one or two days to teaching like teaching prep but I also see my teaching and research and seeing clients so I see myself as wearing three hats that are constantly switching but they also are of like the same color so let's just say it's like green like three green hats right so like i put one hat on and it's like my practitioner hat and that's when i i'm seeing clients and i'm supervising my students seeing clients so it's really like that practitioner hat sure. and then i have my like my service hat which i put in there i consider teaching a service mm-hmm. too Absolutely. um right like teaching about my clients about my research and then my researcher hat But all of that is brought into the classroom and with my clients. So all of my research informs my teaching and informs what I do with my clients. So like an example of that can be when I'm talking about one of the classes I'm teaching right now is clinical mental health counseling and treatment. So 
we're talking about cognitive behavioral therapy. So one of the ways that we're, we're going to be talking about it is how do we culturally adapt that if you have a like Latina with breast cancer? So then like I might give them a case study of what that might look like because it's one of the works that I'm familiar with. And then I say, OK, this is how you would adapt it. And then this is how we adapt it for our for my research. Um, I also don't want to only bring in my research because I think that would be nauseous for some students <laughs> just like you're always talking about you and we're only reading about you so i don't only do that yeah. <laughs> i bring in other scholars as well you know th this is really for me is a great picture of an integrated teacher scholar practitioner yeah right it's it's not sort of three buckets that don't talk to each other I love mm -hmm. it. so when you think about impacts you hope to have on on your trainees yeah unpack that for us a there's two impacts that come to mind. One of them is is that I hope that when they when wherever they end up, because we have three specializations, we have school counseling, career counseling, and clinical mental health counseling. So wherever they end up working, I'm hoping that their clients say, I feel like I feel confident and comfortable talking to my counselor about my different identities and that what they're doing makes sense why they're doing it. Basically, right, like it's based off of the research. They're not just doing it because they think it's cool. They are ethically and informed by the research. Well, so that's one of them. And then the other one is really looking at the Latinas with breast cancer. I think just having a, a, a strong com tying community to Cuban culture and my community. I consider that my community, the Latinx culture and Latinas. So I want to make an impact, even if it's a fingerprint. Um, and it looks like for right now, it's going to be headed towards Latinas with breast cancer. So if I can have one of the counseling interventions that I'm going to offer, just lower the distress of one person with breast cancer, that's who identifies as Latina, is the other impact yeah, that I would yeah. like to have. Do you see yourself as a role model for, for future scholars of color? I'm hoping I'm an example of what someone can do if they want to do this. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah that's what I would say. And is there, is there a sense of pressure associated with that? Or, or how, how would you uh -huh. describe that? There is some kind of pressure. Um, I would say that in my kind of position, I've had students come up to me, specifically Latina students, who want to pursue a degree in counseling and they're like, I finally have someone who looks like me. Mm. Um, or like now we're able to offer in our counseling clinic Spanish speaking services mm -hmm. when we weren't able to before. So there's 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 some pressure in if I'm the only one that you're seeing, then what am, what messages am I sending out? Mm -hmm. So there is a sense of pressure. Um, so I'm constantly saying this is how I do it. And this there's other ways that you can do it. But then sometimes they're saying, but I don't have another example. Yeah. So um, I'm trying how I try and mitigate that or manage that really is looking at how I can't control how people are seeing me. But if I feel authentic in what I'm doing, that's all that I can do. Mm -hmm. So in those three green hats that I wear, like and even a fourth one. Right. Because I, I see like academia is also like my family. Like it's my family life. That's all in there. Like if it's all feeling authentic to me, then that's all I can do. That's, so that's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. You cast your vision uh, five, ten years into the future. You, you think about the, the aspirational impact you, you have on, on mental health practice. Talk to us about what you ho hope uh -huh. it might look like. Uh -huh. I'm hoping I'm still teaching. So I see my impact also is greater than myself because I train other counselors. So since I've been here, for example, I've been here for almost seven years and each graduating class, we have like 25 to 30 students. Oh, wow. So that's maybe 
25 to 30 practitioners a year that we are dispersing like and that are going to be providing counseling services in school settings in career settings in the community through clinical mental health so I'm like I'm contributing to that so I think my students helping other people is a trickle effect of of like my teaching and my faculty's teaching mm -hmm. and their hard work that they're putting into earn this degree. So that's one of the things that makes me smile the most. Like the, the impact that my students are going to be making in other people's lives, I will not even begin to know what that is. And then yes, my own counseling intervention with my own clients and the own intervention. So it's really like the client's lives that I'm hoping are impacted by everything that I'm doing to some extent. That's powerful. Isn't yeah. It? And you imagine how many lives can be touched by the cohorts of students that you send out there, right? It's the right. multiplicative effect that's humbling when you stop and think about it. It is. And I hadn't stopped to think about it in a minute between being pregnant, going up for tenure, and COVID. <laughs> yeah. I hadn't thought about this all this sure, year. So sure, it is yeah. powerful. Yeah. Let me ask, if I may, how has motherhood impacted your approach to work? Mm -hmm. The guilt to saying no has lessened. Because I need to prioritize my family, which is my priority, especially Emma. So like what she needs. Yes. And so I think I'm more focused at work. So I'm procrastinating less. <laughs> I would want That's to good. say to some extent, sure, like sure, yeah. I only have this amount of time to work. So like um, some of the things that used to take me four hours. Now I only have two hours to do them. So I either find that I can do them in that amount of time or I just can't do them because I have to go pick up Emma and I have to spend time and I want to spend time with my daughter. Yeah. Everything to her right now is like, wow, and exciting. And like, I remember um, how that was like in my career. So now I'm like, what is wow for me? Like in this next stage mm, of my career, right? Yeah, like yeah. I'm learning so much from her and like that saying no, like it, you know, some things we have to do, like administrative things. You know, when I see clients, I have to do the notes for my clients. Sure. It's not my favorite part, but it's things I need to do. Mm -hmm. But most of the things I'm saying yes to now at least have some aspect of, like, would Emma find this exciting? Like, does this bring out some kind of wow for me? That is really needed. That's really Emma. cool. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad you said yes to this as well. Yes, I did. <laughs> yeah. This got me excited. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm curious on the converse of Matt's question. How has your training impacted your personal life? How you approach, you know, the mind, how you approach mm -hmm. conversations? Yeah. I try not to therapize my friends. And sometimes <laughs> they, they like get to me. They're like, I'm sometimes like, do you want counselor, Jessica? Or do you want like real, like just one minute, just realness right now? Yeah. So yeah. I think um, I try, I think the two different energies, like my, my family and my friends aren't my clients. So like I try and filter myself, but also just kind of get to what I really think. Mm. Because part of being a counselor is trying to be non-judgmental and having the client create the best versions of what they think they want versus maybe in my personal life. I know this person in and out, so I can see different aspects of their life that I can't see with a client because I can't see where they live. I don't know where they work. Well, I know where they work, but I can't see those things oftentimes. Yeah. So I tend to provide my opinion more with my friends and family more directly, which I think saves time. <laughs> but, sure. but then also I'm always promoting therapy to everybody. That's <laughs> After good. I give my opinion, I'm like, and you can always go to counseling. Here That's awesome. <laughs> I have two additional questions if we can. And, and it's really about the environment that we find ourselves having the opportunity to work in. And the first one is CSU as an institution. It's a land-grant institution. This is a heritage that we, we take seriously. We certainly talk about it all the time. One of the things that's 
for 26 years has struck me is that that's, you know, you don't have to go looking on the website. It's pretty front and center. What, what does that mean to you to work at a land-grant institution? One of the things that it means to me is that in for me particularly, in order to provide the resources that I want for my un, for the underserved populations that I want to work for, we need resources. And working at a land-grant institution, I have a lot of examples of how people have applied for grants and how have they've made resources available to the community, surrounding community. So I have a lot of examples of how I can do that. Mm. I've gotten some seed grants, um, and like next steps is to get larger grants to be able to provide counseling interventions to more than just one location. Because in order to provide those services, you need money. And one of the ways to get that is through applying for grants. And then not only that, though, one thing that's very important to me is how can those, once you get a grant, how can that be sustainable Mm -hmm. after after you get the funding for it? How are Mm -hmm. we going to make it sustainable? So that's definitely one of the ways I want to create an impact is that as I get apply for grants and receive them, how do I make this sustainable within the community? Not just provide an intervention. And I don't have an exact answer how to do that yet, (laughs) but um, that's part of my impact that I want of if I go in and provide an intervention, how can I make it sustainable? Again, I love this perspective because the focus here is is on the lives that I'm touching from a sustainability standpoint first, and and the sustainability of of Jessica's scholarship might follow that, but it's not the other way around. Mm -hmm. It's not, um, you know, I'm delivering this program, but thinking about my next grant. Yeah. Right. And I think that can get inverted really easily sometimes. Yeah. And it diminishes the impact, or at least the potential to. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are steps to that, too. Part of that is like one of the things that we're going to be doing next is, like I said, doing a focus group with Latinas who are undergoing breast cancer treatment to see what they really need and what they want. So not just going in and doing interventions and maybe looking at Spanish speaking therapists in the area. How many are there in that area? If there aren't any, how can we recruit and retain them? Not just for our intervention. So like I said, not answers now, but it's on my mind as I'm doing these as they come up. That's great. Thanks for sharing. Next layer down is this College of Health and Human Sciences. It's it's a broad mm-hmm. range of disciplinary focuses and we were just talking about it's it's really vibrant. If if we allow ourselves to get out of our own, you know, sort of silos, mm-hmm. we can look across the college. And you had an opportunity to do this in the spring when you, you gave a lightning talk at Research Day, right? To, so long to ago. Go, wow. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> look at all these things going on in the college. So let's talk a little bit about you know life as an academic in the College of Health and Human mm-hmm. Sciences. So I, I look at the College of Health and Human Sciences as like an integrated team because being a counselor, I've always worked in integrated teams, like with people who are social workers, psychologists, medical doctors, and I've found myself collaborating, I say just across the street, because I am in the School of Education and Behavioral Sciences is right across, yeah. so I um, pair with health psychology, social work, um, statistics I've paired with. So I think in order to do the work that and make the impact that I want to make, it, I don't know if I can make it just with people like within one school. Sure. Mm-hmm. So I see the benefit for everybody because part of counseling is looking at people holistically and they're, they not they may not need just mental health. Um, I'm thinking of occupational therapy, right? Especially with people undergoing breast cancer treatment, they might be going under to some physical um, issues as well. So how can they might be working with occupational therapy? So I think my community work is representative within the College of Health and Human Sciences to an extent. That's great. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're lucky to have you. Yes.
So thanks for joining us today. You've got a lot going on, obviously, and we really appreciate a few minutes of your time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, this was fun, and it helped me to reflect on kind of my career, so that made me wow, <laughs> like Emma says. Yeah, that's yeah. good. That's yeah. good. Another great interview is in the books. Thank you for listening to this episode of Health and Human Science Matters. Stay tuned for the next episode. It's on the way. In the meantime, go listen to our episodes from seasons one and two. And if you want to learn more about our College of Health and Human Sciences at CSU, go to www.chhs.colostate.edu.